the great doctrines of the Bible or the doctrinal structure of the Bible. And I'll give no introduction at all, but simply go right on at exactly the point where we left off uh, last time. And that is the work of Christ the mediator <clears throat> as king. And we had just come to the place of saying that there were saying that there were three ways in which Christ is king. Christ is king in three ways. And we'll begin immediately at that point. First, Christ is head over all things now. Christ is king in three ways. One, Christ is head over all things now. The verse that would most surely come to our mind immediately is Matthew 28:18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So here you have um, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Of course, this is after his resurrection. So we're told that right now, in a very real sense, all power is given over unto Christ in heaven and earth. And it would not be a wrong way to speak at this particular place, therefore, to speak of the fact that Christ, therefore, in this capacity, can be viewed as the God of providence. you notice it's at the present time. It's right now. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That is, uh, that is the, um, after the resurrection in our own era. In Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, same emphasis. And tonight I'll not try to exhaust verses that deal with the uh, subjects before us, especially if we get into the humiliation and exaltation. That would be impossible, but only give samplings as it were. And even here it will, I'll not try to make it exhaustive because I would like if possible to get through uh, both this study tonight and even if it takes us a bit longer and the lesson has to be a, a bit longer, Christ's humiliation and exaltation. I'm just mentioning the fact that I'm speeding up a bit and will be giving almost samplings rather than exhaustive study. But here you have the same emphasis, Christ's power at the present time, in Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is the same note you that at this present time you have this, the Bible saying that he is, this power is in his hand. Christ is our head over all things now. So again, right now, Christ, on the right hand of God the Father, is head over all things. And it is not a meaningless statement, but he is, it says he is head of over all things for the church, right now. 
And thus, of course, as Christians, if we have accepted Christ as our Savior indeed, if we are Christ, real Christians, there is this, thus no sense of a need to fear because we may be beset by enemies, but we, are, we also have a mediator who is victorious and has all power now. It doesn't mean things are reduced to a piece of theaters, nevertheless. Uh, but with this, yet nevertheless, we are not alone as orphans, as it were, adrift in an enemy world. So Christ now holds all things in his power, and he works all things for our good. And I've deliberately used a phrase here which reminded of Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. To the real Christian, all things work together. But it's not a chance all things working together. It is God working all things together for us. And specifically, we're told, bringing this together with Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, that Christ, who has all this power in his hand now, indeed, he's head over all things for the church. And so we can very quietly, in the midst of the storms, comprehend that it is not just a chance thing that all things work together for our good, but that he is working all things together for our good. Now, this is the first, then, the first, first emphasis. Christ is king in three ways. One, Christ is head over all things now. Now, at that particular place, I would read the shorter catechism, number 26. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? You notice this is to encompass this whole section. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us. This would be the note we have just spoken of. And in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. The same note. Now, however, there is a lack of clarity here, which is not unusual in the things of uh, eschatology in the Westminster Confession of Faith and, uh, and in the catechisms. And uh, here we have a, a note of um, uh, something not clear. Christ is king. And, but as you read this, there are two aspects, it would seem, to be brought together without a, an adequate differentiation between them. Christ is king now, and yet the different way in which Christ will be king at the second coming of Christ. So this is the, the second aspect of Christ being king. And that is the at the second coming of Christ. Now, it is interesting that as we think of this note of unclarity in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, that this does, as you trace back over the history, over the history of, um, of the Westminster Confession, one finds that there were men of different eschatological persuasions there. And um, the man who most people would say had most to do more than any other man, single man, uh, with the entire structure of the Westminster Confession of Faith and, Cate and Catechism was Samuel Rutherford from Scotland. And Samuel Rutherford was distinctly a Achilleist. 
man who was looking for forward to a time when Christ would reign upon the earth. And Samuel Rutherford was there. He partook in all the discussion. And this is an important note because it would be unthinkable to think that Samuel Rutherford would allow the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms to be so written that he would feel that it uh, did not also include his very clear view, and that is that Christ would reign on the earth for a thousand years, and that this would be a different reign than Christ's present reign as king. This is the point I'm making. We're talking about the fact there are three aspects of Christ, uh, Christ as king. The first is Christ is head over all things now. But as you turn to the scriptures, I think one has an adequately clear note that there will be a time in the future when his reigning as king will be different than it is now. And that is when he reigns on the earth. And there's a very intriguing thing with this note of Samuel Rutherford and his clear view uh, as a killist and uh, being yet the most important man on the floor of the Westminster Assembly, clearly not feeling that these statements, which are somewhat ambiguous in eschatology uh, throughout the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, certainly he would have felt that it was not, these did not militate against his view. Now you have an, an interesting and even more interesting note because you have a friend of his by the name of George Gillespie, George Gillespie, and he was a friend of Samuel Rutherford's of the same period of Reformation in Scotland. And uh, George Gillespie said something which strikes very deeply in a remark of his on 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 25. I'll read that. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 25. Well, 23 through 25, I see I have marked. But in every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign to have put all enemies under his feet. And remarking on that, George Gillespie uh, says, and I'll quote directly, we might go further with this text and observe that Christ does not reign over the devils as he is mediator. Verse 24 tells us that at the last day he will put an end to all other government, authority, and power, thereby implying that at the moment there are rival governments, foes. Our Lord, of course, does reign over the devils, but he does not reign over them as mediator, nor does he administer this kingdom with evangelical ordinances, as he does in the kingdom of the church. Therefore, we must conclude that Christ has one kingdom as the eternal Son of God and another as mediator. That's end of quote. Maybe I ought to read it again, though actually when we are dealing with eschatological things, we will spend more time on this passage and the, pa uh, the parallel passages involved. Just read it tonight, though, in passing, to in case someone who uh, someone would say that those who hold the strong reform position out of the Reformation did not 
leave room for a distinction. This is the point at the moment, only one question of mine. A distinction between Christ reigning as king uh, uh, in the present time and uh, as he will reign uh, at a future time. And the question is, is this distinction possible biblically? And then secondly, of course, also, is it possible uh, from a... Uh, in the historic stream of Reformed teaching, and in the light of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms especially, uh, as we're following through this section. So I'll read it again, just pointing out that one of these men was so central in the Reformation in Scotland and in the Reformed tradition there did make clear, very plain that he felt there was a distinction between Christ reigning as king in the present time and the future reign of king, a future reign of Christ as king uh, in the future. We might go further with this text and observe that Christ does not reign over the devils as uh, he is mediator, period. Verse 24 tells us that at the last day he will put, put an end to all other government, authority, and power, thereby implying that at the moment there are rival governments, foes. Our Lord, of course, does reign over the devils, but he does not reign over them as mediator, nor does he administer this kingdom with evangelical ordinances as he does in the kingdom of the church. Therefore, we must conclude that Christ has one kingdom as the eternal Son of God and another as mediator. We might or might not like certain expressions there, but that isn't the point tonight. It's only one point, and that is, as we're saying, there are two aspects, in fact, three, of Christ uh, reigning um, as king, that um, it is not against those who were most central in drawing up the subordinate standards which were following the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism when we make this distinction. This is the only point here. Now then, thinking of Christ being head over all things, however, I would say that I think this is exactly right what Gillespie has said in his general thrust, and that is there, the Bible is clear that there will come a time when well, Christ will reign as king uh, in a different way than he reigns now. One would think of a passage, uh, for example, of Satan. Satan is going about now as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Certainly no much feeling of, of Christ, his being chained in the same sense that would apply to Christ's reign as king. Uh, in the time when he's reigning on the earth in the future. So here we find that the second aspect of Christ's reigning as king is in the future, when he, at the second coming of Christ, when he reigns on the earth, and at that time he will apply his, the victory of his work as priest on the cross in a very special and definite way. And actually it would seem to me that this though men have debated this, that there's very little reason to debate it because it would seem to me the Scripture speaks with special clarity at this point. In Hebrews 2.8, for example, we read there, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Surely this is a distinct statement. There is coming a time when all things will be under him in a way that is not even now. You have, seems to me, the same sort of an emphasis in Acts 1, 6, and 7. Uh, at the time of uh, Christ's 
after his resurrection and just before his ascension. And uh, we find the, these followers of his, who, of course, all of them were Jewish, and we find them saying, And when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. And then he goes on, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now here you have a very intriguing thing, that and they, seeing him fulfill the first part of the prof uh, prophetic uh, portions of the Old Testament concerning the coming work of the Messiah, naturally ask him, Are you going to now fulfill those other portions? And he does not reprove them. He said, does not say... As he said other times, you don't understand the scriptures. He doesn't say, I'm never going to take such a position. He just simply says, you're not to know the times of the seasons. It seems to me this presses it. Uh, uh, the reign of Christ as the king of the Jews and on the earth in a very definite and clear way, uh, it puts it into the future, and Christ does not scold them, as it were, for holding a, a wrong position. He just says, it isn't the time, and you're not to know the time. In First in First Timothy 6, 14 and 15, same kind of a note. First Timothy. First Timothy 6, 14 and 15. Thou, uh, that thou keep his commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he will show. The blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It seems clearly that this term here is specifically related to the time that it will be future, and then he will be King of kings and Lord of lords. Now you have the fact of Christ seeming to say very especially in, and we won't, in Matthew 25, 31 through 34, without getting into the details of that passage, which we've done, uh, which in the principles of the exegesis of the prophetic passages, which we've already made that tape, though it fits future to this study we're having here as far as the series of studies are concerned but we've in that you will find when you come to it therefore that we have uh, spent a good bit of time on this and i only say want to point out this particular place without getting into the details and that you have an emphasis here uh, of when the son of man shall come verse 25 31 so you have a future note and you know who it is it is jesus and yet nevertheless uh, we find Jesus calling himself a king here. Then shall, in the 34th verse, then shall the king say unto them. So here you have Christ calling himself a king, and he comes as judge in the future. He speaks of himself as a king here. And this would be in the relationship of Christ as king at the second coming. And then remembering the, the Timothy passage we've just uh, finished, it ties up expressly, of course, with Revelation 
where Jesus is called there at a future time in relationship to his coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is repeated twice without going into the structure of the book of Revelation here, which we'll do in the appropriate place in studying the book of Revelation. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lord and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of Lords and Kings, a King of Kings. And this uh, this expression, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, therefore, is especially applied to him in the future as he comes back again. And in Revelation 19:16, you have in the midst of his literal coming upon the earth and against the Antichrist. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here we're told that in a very special way as he comes back, he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You have a very interesting thing in Philippians 2, 10, 11, every knee shall bow. I don't think this means for a moment every knee will necessarily want to bow. But as he comes back in glory, even those with a sinful heart must bow even if they're still in their heart, is still in rebellion against him. So now we have looked at two aspects of Christ as king. The, the power which he has now, and secondly, that future thing which is promised, which will be a king in a different way in the application of his victory. It's not in between these two sections. It's not a a intrinsic limitedness of power, but it's an application of the power, it would seem to me, which makes very much the difference. In other words, when we say he he's, has power over all things now, and then we say he's going to be king in the future, it isn't that he has all power now, and then he's going to have more than all power then. That, of course, wouldn't make any sense at all. It's the problem, it seems to me, rather of the application of his victory in space, in time, in history. The tie-in with the Acts passage, that the the uh, season that the uh, that these things are in the Father's hand. So you have here now the the double thing. First of all, all power now this Christ of ours, this who's in his mediatorial work as King, head over all things for the Church, and yet to be applied as a uh, in um, in a very special way at his second coming. So it is not that, as some Christians say, and some very dear Christians are always very disturbed if you say Christ is king now. They say, oh no, he's king of the Jews and he'll be king in the future. But this is not contrary to the understanding that he has all power now and therefore in this sense can be specifically designated as king. I think this is worth grasping because then uh, we feel the the relationship, that the relationship is not one of increased power, but one of increased, um, you know, not increased, but one of the application of victory at a time of space and time in history. Now, the third aspect of Christ as king is Christ is king of our lives. And by our, then I'm speaking of the Christians. And these same Christians, of whom I'm often 
very fond and very close to them theologically in many ways, would always be especially disturbed now if they if they hear us speak of Christ as king of our lives as Christians. But I think it's very plain from Scripture that this is a proper application of the term. That Christ has all power now. This will be applied in a very specific way at his second coming. And yet we who are Christians now must understand that he is king of our lives now. You remember we pointed out in Acts 17.7, Acts 17.7, that the church did not stop using the term king applied to Christ after his ascension. And we find the charge coming indirectly, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus, an appreciable amount of time after the ascension that uh, Paul preaching among the Gentiles and out of Palestine says has been preaching Christ as king. Christ as king. However, you have, it seems to me, an absolute statement in, of concerning the fact that Christ is the king of the Christian and therefore king of our lives now in Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1.13 Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Seems to me that would be utterly final. The note is a very lovely one. The Greek is something a little different, which is more beautiful and ties in with other passages a bit more clearly. Hath translated us unto the kingdom uh, of the Son of his love, is the literal Greek the kingdom of the son of his love. Now you have this very intriguing fact here that we are translated. We have been in the power of darkness, but we're now translated into a different kingdom. We're translated in the present life into the kingdom of the son of his love. The word translated, it seems to me, is intriguing here that just as Elijah was and Enoch were translated from the earth to heaven, so while we, so we, while still upon the earth and before we die, are already translated from the kingdom of darkness, the power of darkness, to the kingdom of the Son of His love. So we are now in His kingdom. We are now in His kingdom. Now, this does not mean at all, it seems to me, this does not bring any conflict with the concept of a special kingdom, a special application of the kingdom, a special revealing of the kingdom in the future, and his reigning over Israel as their king at that future time. I think this is a false antithesis. This is an, an unnecessary dichotomy. And the parallel would be in the giving of the Holy Spirit. We have that lovely Joel passage uh, which says that the Holy Spirit is going to be given. And then in Pentecost you find that a part of the Joel passage is quoted as being fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But not to go in this passage too thoroughly either because this falls into the area of eschatology and at that time to exhaust it. Uh, but nevertheless... 
it is quite plain in reading the Joel passage that it is not all fulfilled now. And yet that does not make a dichotomy between the giving of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Jews at the second coming of Christ in that special relationship they will have to him. It is in the area of what I would call, and what I will develop in the, uh, prof in the prophecy tapes, the aspect of unity and diversity. Without going into that now. So you have it already in, the, in this Joel passage in the giving of the Holy Spirit. You have the passage, the Joel passages, passage. It is partially fulfilled in the time of Pentecost, but it is, there is a unit to this which, in which there will also be not a different fulfillment, as it were, but a part of the same fulfillment at the second coming of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Jews in a special fashion. Now, I think you have exactly the same situation here. One does not have to choose between saying there'll be no future kingdom in this special way of the reign of Christ upon the earth. One does not have to choose between this and saying, well, then, we are not in his kingdom now. See, no reason to choose this, and I think the scripture makes plain we can't make this choice. We are in his kingdom now if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, but this does not mean that all aspects of the kingdom are as yet revealed. And this would be in the direction, then, back to George Gillespie's quote that I gave you. So now, we have, if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, there is the very wonderful thing that he is our king. He is our king. He truly is our king. In Acts 26, 18, just one other verse at this particular place. Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. You know the word kingdom here, but clearly the same sort of a passage exactly here in the book of Acts as you have in Colossians 1. So we have accepted Christ as our Savior. Good. He is now our King. Not that all aspects of the kingdom are open before our eyes at the present moment. Uh, but nevertheless, He is now our King. Now that's lovely. It's wonderful. And He is our ruler. He is our absolute ruler. And it was in certainly in the preaching in this way that they that they, we find in the uh, Acts 17 passage, they came in, Paul's conflict came into conflict with Rome. Christ is our king. But now I think it is false, I could stop at this particular point, but it would be false to, to do so without noticing a sober note. And that is, if Christ is our king, it carries a, a something along with it. It carries a responsibility along with it. If you open your Bibles to Luke 19, and you remember we already have pointed out this Luke 19 passage in verses 37 and 38 as the statement during the, uh, the emphasis on Christ as king in the triumphal entry. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, we're in this same chapter now. We're in that same, same chapter. And at that same place we mentioned 
uh, Luke 19, 11 through 29, as dealing with this, uh, is introducing the concept of Christ as king. And we read verses 11 and 12, which I'll read again. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable. And this was the introduction to the triumphal entry. Because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Now you notice again the emphasis, uh, exactly what you find later at the book of Acts, in Acts 1. And he spoke this because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Not that the Jews in general were wrong in their concept of his, the Messiah coming, reigning on the earth as a king in a very specific, special fashion. Not that at all. But the emphasis exactly in, as in Acts 1, the, the dilemma is that they, uh, that they missed the time, a, a time element involved. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Now, here we have, therefore, uh, the fact that uh, here is the king, and he's going away. But as the king is away, before he comes back and picks up uh, all the vestiges of his, uh, of his rule as king, he says to his servants, Occupy till I come. So here we have a, um, a, the problem of our present relationship to our king, though he is away. Now then, this parable, you find, deals with two classes of people. So you have the 14th verse, And his citizens hated him, and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And the end of these people... The end of these people that he designates here in this parable as citizen is found in the 27th verse. But those mine enemies that would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. So here are those, and this is an additional note, that these who are in rebellion in the world and do not belong to Christ, their, their very sin is treason and rebellion because he is their rightful ruler. The only reason he is not the king of everybody is because the world has rebelled against him. And they are these who could properly be called his citizens, but who say, we will not have this man to reign over us. And therefore, at his coming, there is this very sober word of judgment. We have a note back, it seems to me, related to this in the 10th verse, where you find Jesus saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. These are the lost, it would seem to me. But there are those who accept Christ as Savior no longer are lost and have been translated, therefore, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear Son. Now these are his servants in the 13th verse. And he says to us, Occupy till I come. We who are, this is our charge, Occupy till I till uh, I come. Now, just as the 27th verse deals with those in the class of his citizens who hated him and said, we will not reign over him till we, till this, till, uh, we, we will not have this man to reign over us. So the, the results to the citizen, or, or to his servants at his coming, are found in verses 15 through 26. 
This is the understanding of the parable. Here are the saved. Here are those who are in his kingdom uh, and have been translated from the kingdom of uh, darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. And he's giving us a charge while he's away and before he comes back to his full rule as king, occupy till I come. Trage would be the way to translate this. Here we are. Well, what is the what is the aspect that he is portraying to us concerning what he will say to us when he comes back? We who are in his kingdom through accepting him as Savior. And, of course, it runs down in verses 15 through 26. The man who has traded, uh, followed Christ's command, and has been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And in the 19th verse, likewise to him be thou also over five cities. But then in the 24th verse, take from him that uh, said unto them that stood by, take from him the pound and give to them that have ten pounds. So now we see there are, there are two clear classes, those who are in rebellion against the rightful king, but those who indeed have taken their place as in his kingdom. And then he says, well, now then, trade ye. And then when he comes back, he says, I'm going to talk to you about how well you serve me on the basis of your present relationship to me as king, even though I am an absent king, even though I'm away. Now, I think it would be utterly false to deal with the, with the fact that we are in Christ's kingdom, and Christ is our kingdom, our king now, without pointing out the sobering night note that he is going to talk to us about how we occupy in his absence. And the, there are many passages, of course, that deal with this, but the clearest one, holding your hand in Luke 19, is 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. And here you have, uh, and this isn't the only one by any means. We could have a, a whole, whole two-hour study on this with no problem whatsoever, this emphasis in the New Testament. But this is very clear. In 1 Corinthians 3, beginning with uh, the 11th verse, For other foundation can no man they lay than that which is laid, uh, which, is Christ, which is Jesus Christ. There's no way to be saved except through accepting Christ as Savior. Then the 12th verse, now, but in the Greek, it's duh, and surely a better translation would be but at this place. So if we accept Christ as our Savior, we are, we are in the rock, Christ Jesus. But there is something to say about this, even if we are on the rock. Now, or but, if any man build upon this foundation that has accepted Christ as save, Savior, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, the day of the coming of Christ in judgment, of believer's judgment, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, that is, on this foundation of which there is no other, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So if we build with that which is combustible, uh, we, the builder, is a builder escapes, but his building is destroyed. It's the picture here. 
picture is a, a huge rock. We, we get up on this rock, which is Christ Jesus, as we accept Christ as our Savior. Then on this rock, we take our place and we build with one form of material or the other, that which will burn or that which will not burn. At the day of the believer's judgment, not for salvation, because it says so expressly, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Very clear declaration. You won't be lost again. But there is such a thing as having a reward or not having a reward. Now, intriguingly enough, Jesus in the this parable of the of the ent where he's just beginning the triumphal entry and this tremendous emphasis on Christ as King in Luke 29 goes over exactly that which is parallel to this. Exactly parallel. So if you look at verse 14 in 1 Corinthians, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. Jesus in this parable in Luke 19 speaks of, uh, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. Likewise to him be thou over five cities. Now, this is exactly the same thing. Without going into a detailed meaning of it, it is obviously a total parallel. It matters a great deal concerning how we now discharge our duties to our king, even though he is absent, and even though equally we are not saved by our works. It's not a question of salvation, but here in Corinthians and back here in Luke, we're being severely reminded and soberly made a very sober reminder that it matters a great deal as to our loyalty to our absent king. Now you have the second parallel in 1 Corinthians 3.15. If any man's work shall be burned, that he, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. And this is surely parallel in Luke 19.24. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give to the him that hath ten pounds. The emphasis the same. Nothing to do with not being saved, but the, the intriguing thing is it's exactly the same emphasis. No reward. No reward. Now then, in these passages, as we have thought about uh, this final third aspect of Christ as King, Christ as King of our lives in our present life, if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, the emphasis that if we have accepted him as Savior, we are responsible to serve him now as king, even though the whole world around us is in, in deliberate total rebellion against their proper king. The world about us, are in re they are in rebellion against their proper king, though they are the proper citizens. And then the warning is that in spite of the rebellion, almost when one might certainly say in love for our king because of the rebellion about us, it is important as to the degree of our faithfulness to our king in the present life. And not only that, but both this Corinthian passage, many other passages, and this Luke passage in, in the concept of king makes plain that we will be held accountable for the way we serve him. And you have the note in Matthew 25, 21 and 23, a parallel, uh, parallel section where he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And this is, this rests upon our relationship to our absent king from the time he becomes our king and our accepting Christ as Savior until he returns or our death. So therefore you have the very definite note of 
Of indeed, all power is given to Christ now, but there is a future aspect of the kingdom and the application of his power in a, in a different way. But we who have accepted Christ as our Savior, though we look forward to that future aspect of his kingdom, should not forget that he is king of our lives now, and we will be held accountable for, our, uh, for the way we serve him. And there should be an emotional note involved. There's nothing wrong with emotional note at this point uh, of the fact that Christ is our king. He's everyone's king. And we know this little story, I'm sure, of the become a habitual story of Queen Victoria, who when she heard the Messiah played Handel's Messiah, stood up, and when one of her ladies rebuked her and said, you are the queen, uh, she responded uh, that he is my king of kings and lord of lords. I am the queen of England, but Christ is my king of kings and lord of lords. And this is not a bad emotional note because that is right. If Queen Victoria had accepted him as Savior, happily it would seem to be the case, she was perfectly right that he was as much her King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he is anyone else's. And this should touch us because he is our King of Kings and Lord of Lords even though he is now absent. So as we have accepted Christ as our Savior, his mediatorial work indeed involves that of prophet and priest, but also his kingship, and this should not be merely a theoretical concept, but should be a reality in the practice of our life. Christ should be my king in practice. Now then, this brings us to the end of the study of the mediatorial work of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And you remember, so far, we have considered Christ the mediator. First, we read the Old Testament references of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. We just read them. The second note of Christ as mediator was his person. The third note was his work as prophet, priest, and king. And that brings us to the fourth and last portion of our study of Christ the Mediator, and that is Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. Now this is a, this is the, this is looking at his work in a different way, and his mediator, his work as a mediator in a different way. If you think of it in, in, in regard to his offices, then it is prophet, priest, and king. If you think of it of, of his whole life, however, and his whole work, uh, then probably it is so that the best way to separate, to divide this up is his humiliation and his exaltation. And the Westminster Confession of Faith actually makes a great deal of this, especially in the longer catechism. So now we're going to, we're not, we're not going on. It isn't prophet. It is in prophet, priest, and king, and then his humiliation and exaltations, like two parallel lines. It's his offices, prophet, priest, and king, and then we move over to, his, to viewing his whole work in a different way. And this is his, his humiliation and exaltation. Do so. His humiliation and exaltation involved in all his offices. So this is where we are. 
Now, in the I'll read a lot of the longer catechism at this place because they have a lot of they have a lot of questions on this, and I think they'll be helpful. And in the light of of our entire study, I think we will feel the force of the way that these men of the of a day that has gone by wrestled with a true biblical view of uh, of the wonder of the work of Christ as mediator. And if any of you are considering at the same time the modern theologies, as some of you will, you will sense an entire universe of difference of mentality. It is not just a, uh, a little difference, but the new theology is a universe away from this. Millions of light years away. Longer Catechism 46. What was the state of Christ's humiliation? Answer. The state of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptied himse emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant. In his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death, until his resurrection. Now, the interesting note here is that they make a very clear division at the point at which the humiliation turns and the exaltation begins. And that is not at his death, but until his resurrection. We'll see why uh, that they do this as we go on, and I think it's entirely scriptural. So his humiliation begins with his taking of that low condition and ends after his death at the time of his resurrection. Now then, if you look at John 17:5, you have Jesus himself saying very clearly, speaking of the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. This, of course, is his high priestly prayer. It's where you would expect such an expression. The glory Christ had with the Father before the creation of the world. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. You have an emphasis, therefore, of what he had before he came. What he had before he came. And then in sharp contrast to that, you have Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Seems to me bringing these two together gives you the thrust of, of the initial concept of his humiliation, his laying his his divine majesty aside in a way that's very complete. Philippians 2, 6, and 7, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So the first step, surely, of his, um, of his humiliation is his laying his glory aside, the wonder of the second person of the Trinity. Because the biblical view, and there you feel immediately the division between this view uh, and the new theology, is that the, the Trinity is not just an idea, but the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had already been together for eternity in love and communication, in wonder of glory. And uh, this note in Philippians, he made himself, he deliberately, deliberately, deliberately uh, laid his glory aside. Now, there are 
the, the wonder of this. I remember a little track I saw one time. It was very well done, I thought, and I was picturing Jesus, as it were, taking off his cloak in the heavenlies to come down to the earth. It wasn't, wasn't great art at all, but it said something well. And this is the biblical position, that actually, by choice, in order to be my Redeemer, your Redeemer, if a Redeemer he is of yours, in order to carry on his work as mediator, there was a tremendous cost. It wasn't a, a cold concept, it wasn't a theological idea, but a tremendous and overwhelming cost. And the first cost was laying his glory aside by choice. It wasn't done, it wasn't forced upon him. And you have in Second Corinthians 8, 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. And we shouldn't accept this. We shouldn't come to this as a, as, an, as a cold proposition. If we do, we ought to just tear it up and throw it away and quit. It isn't a cold proposition. He, here is the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of Trinity, God the Son for all eternity. And by choice, he lays his glory aside in order to take such a place. That's the first step. And then the second step in his humiliation is that he took upon him the form of a man. He took flesh upon he took upon him flesh. In John one fourteen John one fourteen, this is the incarnation of course. John one fourteen, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek is became. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John, that is John the Baptist, bear witness of him. When you put these verses together, the force is very strong. The eternity of of the of the wonder of this before creation the second person the trinity and yet the word was made flesh became flesh and this person that's being referred to is the one that john the baptist uh, bear witness to it's the him to whom john the bear witness pointed his finger in all the medieval pictures and renaissance pictures you can always tell john the baptist because he's always pointing if you ever see a picture with, and you don't know what the subject is, and you, someone appropriately addressed, or, or even not appropriately dressed, as long as his finger's pointing, you may be very dogmatic, this is John the Baptist and the symbolism of a certain type of painting. Existed for many, many years. And the, it's because he was pointing to Christ. And uh, this is the word. And so the one who was the Word, the creator of all things, became flesh, became flesh and dwelt among us, and the hymn to whom John pointed was this hymn. You, some of you will recognize that this is a strong word in reference not only to liberal theology, but to the Jehovah's Witnesses, incidentally, on the way past. 
Now, the longer catechism says in the second step of the humiliation, how did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, in that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father. He was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, to be born to her, uh, be born of her, I beg your pardon, to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. So this is the, the second step of the humiliation. The first is laying the glory aside. The second is being born in the form of a man. Now, the Bible does make plain just what uh, these men said, and that is, it, isn't, it is not just the humiliation of the eternal Son of God being born as a man, which in any case birth to a woman would be, but it, there were, as it says here in this lovely old language, diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. And so it is, because in Luke, for example, in 2.7, we read the Christmas story, and we sometimes forget that it has elements in it of, indeed, diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. We think this is... Sometimes people seem to think that this is just to make a nice decoration on a Christmas card. But it is not so. Here is humiliation heaped on humiliation. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger 